From the Hydrogen Media offices in Washington, D.C., this is Everything About Hydrogen. I'm Andrew Leadham, General Counsel at Biotech, and joining me today are Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, and Patrick Malloy, Manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI. On this episode of EAH, we sit down with Dr. Bo Sarap Simonson, Chief Executive Officer of the Maersk McKinney Muller Center for Zero Carbon Shipping. The center is a not-for-profit, independent research and development organization accelerating the transition towards a net-zero future for the maritime industry. Bo holds a PhD in naval architecture and mechanical engineering and spent seven years as a research engineer at MIT. Bo joined Chris and Alicia for an excellent conversation to explain the center's work and their focus on the decarbonization of shipping using hydrogen-derived green fuels. But before we get into it, we'd just like to ask that if you enjoy the show and follow us here at EAH, please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcast content. It really does help us promote the show and reach a larger audience. All right, let's get this episode started. So Alicia, how how's life? What's going on? It's just the two of us for this this beginning today. Well, as you know, it's just the two of us because life is crazy. For me, it has been a crazy amount of travel, like eight or nine weeks straight of travel. Yeah, it's been it's been manic. Have you got any any fun immediate kind of things coming up, or is it uh, is it still back on the road once you've uh, recuperated? Well, I mean, it's all fun, you know, it's just like we're really growing with with all the projects and we just keep having, you know, great announcements of of new milestones. So it it is really exciting and and it's painful how that I don't get more than four hours of sleep a night, (laughs) but it's worth it. And I I mean, I, I can't think of anything I would be rather giving up to sleep for. It's it's going to be a year. I think twenty three is going to be a year of action and and some some real decision making. I, I I think it's it's going to be even better than twenty two in terms of delivery of regulations and and just coming to agreements on a, in a number of different ways. I think I think this is going to be the year. Couldn't agree more. This is the the decade of deployment, and now we're 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 now into it. So, yes. I suppose speaking of deployment and the the challenges, we're 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 going to to dive into some some pretty interesting spaces today. Who who have we got on? We have Bosrup Simonson. I had to take classes to learn how to pronounce that name because when you uh, just say his first name, it's Bo. But if you introduce him with the full name, you've got to really string it together. So it's Bosarup Simonson. He is the CEO of the Maersk McKinney Moller Center for Zero Carbon Shipping, otherwise known in Copenhagen as the center with a long name. And they are completely separate from Maersk. It's a unique, not-for-profit platform. And it's funded by philanthropic funds, some of them coming from AP Moller. The, the family that owns Maersk, but some coming from others. And they have 60 or so of their own employees, but they also have secondees from their members. So the members of the center are mostly shipping companies, but it can also be fuel companies. And they actually second employees and they work on these techno-economic studies together. And he's just a really amazing person. I, I think when we get to the interview, you're going to see, but 
but he, you know, doesn't talk about himself uh, in, you know, in a very braggy way. But he came from a teeny tiny town, like 2,000 people, and then managed to get his uh, PhD from DTU and and MIT and also worked at Berkeley. He's focused mostly on safety, which actually I just learned. And and he's really done a lot for the center. So I think we'll hear more about that in the interview, but a pretty remarkable force in, in shipping and, and I think will be an important part of decarbonizing shipping, which, which will be an important part of decarbonizing uh, the world. So I, I think this is going to be a, a very interesting interview. Well, as Andrew likes to say, let's get him on. Yeah. Bo, it's so great to have you on the show. How are you doing? Thank you, Alicia. It's wonderful to be here. I'm doing great. Thanks. Well, we are so excited to hear about everything that you've been working on at the center and also just your general background, what got you here. Uh, I think everybody is super excited about all of the things that you've been putting out um, from the center. So maybe we'll just get right into it. Actually, before you describe the center and and what it does, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about how you got there, you know, what what you've done um, before and and all the different uh, sort of pathways that you've followed uh, beforehand? Yeah, so just very briefly about my background. So I've, I am a, I'm a PhD, originally working uh, in the academic track uh, as a professor doing research and teaching within mechanics and naval architecture and ocean. And uh, so I've been working with safety and environment of operations on the ocean, shipping activities and so on for the last 25 years. I've worked with a classification society, I work with MERSC, I work with energy companies, I work with Royal Caribbean, and I've always been working with sort of bringing new technologies in to do good for the business and and good for the environment and good for the safety. So that's been sort of the red thread uh, throughout my career. And then this opportunity emerged and I thought that's a lifetime opportunity, so I wanted to jump at that immediately. I saw it. So that's how I got here. Wow. And um, can maybe you could tell us a little bit about the center? I think it, it's known as known in uh, Denmark as the center with a really long name. I think that's affectionately. <laughs> it's a good start, isn't it? <laughs> is it in an unpronounceable Danish language? Is, is, what's, <laughs> what's the Danish maybe to give our listeners a sense of it? Yeah, you you can pronounce it as well. Though it's not the pronunciations that's the problem. It's the number of words, I think. But let's 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 hear it. <laughs> the Mass McKinney Muller Center for Zero Carbon Shipping, and it's yes. it's being called also the Center for Zero Carbon Shipping and the Mass McKinney Muller Center and so on. So so it has a number of names, but I would say uh, as a starting point that we are very happy about the name. The fact that. We were established with the name of Mask McKinney Muller, who was a leader in the shipping industry for many years, a, a, a person who was really taking a strong drive in the industry, opens a lot of doors for us. Uh, it's the same name that appears in the AP Muller Merck company name, and that creates some confusion because some people think we are a part of Merck or we are related to Merck, uh, but we are not at all. So therefore, I mean, this the fact that we are independent 
is extremely important to everything we do. And, uh, and that's just something I have to emphasize also always together with the name that we are actually completely independent by law and also by practice in the way we're working. Interesting. And would you mind me asking, how, are you, how, how, is, how is the center funded? The, the center was established by the AP Muller Foundation, which is a foundation uh, owning a, a number of, uh, of things. It owns a holding company called AP Muller Holding, which owns a majority stake uh, in the AP Muller Merck company, but also a number of other companies. So, so it is connected in that way. Uh, so so uh, the holding company pays uh, profits back to the foundation and the foundation uh, gives out philanthropic donations to a number of things, a lot of activities in Denmark. For example, the opera in Copenhagen was sponsored by that foundation. It has given a number of donations to uh, hospitals, to universities, to uh, arts, etc. So it's donating big funds to activities for the greater good. And so we are also in that category of activities for the greater good. And, it, and this is really, and that's why I said it's a really important distinction to make that we are here for the greater good of humanity. That sounds a little, a little big, <laughs> <laughs> but we are here also for the entire shipping industry. Um, so uh, it's not only container ships, uh, but also tanker vessels and bulk ships and cruise ships, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Well, and in addition to um, the the goal of the center and and the fact that it is not profit not for profit and it's, it is for the good of, of of the world, you also have members that are actual shipping companies. So you have real domain expertise to work with. It's not, you're not just. Uh, a think tank like i mean you you actually have people who are seconded to the center is that is that the general structure yes it is so so the way we're working is that we have this philanthropic funding which is funding a, a base a set of activities in the center so we have employed we have employed now 60 people experts across different uh, disciplines and it's funding that base uh, resource of people and then in addition to that, we have made partnerships uh, with large uh, companies and also with governments and government agencies across the world. So right now we have 24 corporate strategic partnerships. We have 12 what we call knowledge partnerships. And then we have about 35 what we call mission ambassadors, which are community partnerships. So that all together is obviously about 70 partners across the globe. And the strongest part of that, I would say, are the corporate strategic partners that are contributing uh, between uh, 600000 and $1 million a year to us, each of them. And many of them donating uh, in terms of in-kind uh, resources. So we have partners across uh, the value chain. We have energy companies, we have technology companies, we have ports, we have ship owners, ship operators, cargo owners, and they are sending experts to Copenhagen to work on these new concepts and on the standards and on the solutions that we believe are going to shape up this future business of zero carbon shipping. So that I believe is a very unique uh, operating model. And it, it gives us both 
the independence to develop the positions that we believe are the right for the planet and the climate. And it also gives us very detailed insights into uh, the real, uh, real world, so to speak. So we get real data about how ships are operated, uh, how cargo are flowing across the globe, how energy is produced and how it's turned into fuels and how it's being transported to the ports, etc. So when we now develop uh, our pathways and our descriptions of what that future looks like and what are the solutions and the standards that are going to shape and form this, uh, this future way of doing things, we have very deep insight into the real matters. And the agreement we have made with these companies is that, of course, they are not going to disclose any proprietary or confidential information, but they are going to bring uh, data and information forward to the center that we can anonymize, that we can aggregate, and we can use to shape this, these descriptions about uh, how to do things in the future. So it's, I think it's a really, really powerful way of, of bringing leaders together on a collaboration platform and making them work in this, what you could, could call pre-competitive stage, pre-competitive phase, where we have to create confidence that these future business systems and these future technical systems and these future regulatory systems are actually going to work. They will help us shape that up. They will help us describe how it works and test it with real data, uh, yet they are not disclosing any details from their uh, proprietary and, and, uh, and sensitive areas. Uh, so so it's, it's, I think it's a really uh, powerful concept. And I have to say, when we launched the idea of this, uh, I, was, uh, I was aware of the risk that it's difficult to make this work in reality when you bring competitors in side by side and so on. And would this actually work? But I have to say, all these companies have gone into this with the right mindset, the right spirit of really making this collaboration platform work and it works. So you can look at the publications we have put out. It's, it's real data in there. It's competitors side by side. Uh, so I think we're really, we're really getting towards uh, what we were dreaming of two years ago, namely being able to do that across the ecosystem uh, with all the relevant players in there. Yeah, that's amazing. In addition to all of the sort of techno-economic analysis that you guys do together, just looking at all the technology required for that would consume green hydrogen and derivative fuels or other competitive fuels, like the infrastructure and the certification, offtake agreements conceptually. But do you think the, the shipping industry also has a role to play in financing or supporting the development of green hydrogen or green fuel projects? Yeah, that's really into one of the major challenges at the moment is that um, there's no supply of green fuels to shipping or very little compared to what is going to be needed. And so uh, those investing in green fuel production need to have some level of certainty that the demand is coming. And um, on the other hand, the, the ship owning community is hesitant to put very strong demand signals. Uh, so so there we have this 
chicken and egg uh, kind of problem at the moment. So the ship owning companies that are leaning in now and really seeing that this is coming, I think they are working hard to figure out how to put enough certainty into the demand signals to get the investors to go and actually build fuel plants. Uh, so we're seeing at the moment that uh, if you look at the main, I would say the main alternative fuels being looked at at the moment, which is uh, biodiesel from from food waste, but that's not really it's not really scalable. So let's take that out and talk about the three other ones that could potentially scale. And those are methane, which could be put into LNG driven ships today. It is methanol, where the engines are available today, and it's ammonia. So those three are the, one, the three big ones uh, that are being discussed at the moment. And, and they all have their pros and cons. And so when we look at the scale of the fuel supply today, it's evident that ammonia is the one that has uh, the largest volume in, in supply at the moment. When you just look at the projects that, are, that have been announced and are in the pipeline. So ammonia has a fairly large scale. If you look, for example, at the 2030 timeline, methanol is only a small fraction of that. And methane is available also at some scale, biomethane, but it's very dispersed and it's already in demand uh, by other sectors. So um, the shipping industry is in the situation that uh, there's actually not a lot of uh, green fuel available for the shipping industry today. I think it's therefore that you have seen uh, Maersk, for example, going out quite actively and, and, and trying to figure out how to source uh, the methanol for their ships is is that exactly the challenge you are alluding to as to how to how to get the certainty that uh, the fuel demand will be there uh, because it's not today yeah when you look at this right i mean i guess like uh, especially you know given this of the mask and, and a number of those companies also have you know tried so many different things it feels like um in the shipping industry when people are having this discussion is this something that um on the fuel side, are you are you kind of going? Where is the is the impetus coming from? The members that you currently have in your group are they the main drivers that are pushing you to look at those particular fuels, or are you finding that there's a is it is it government? Is it NGOs that are coming and pushing you? I'm just thinking about those fuel types, you know, um, and how you got to sort of looking at those fuel types. Who who's sort of been driving that discussion? Um, it's coming from uh, I would say it's coming from different ends and. Um, you have cargo owners. If, so, so if you step back a minute and then look at the whole system, then the majority of emissions from shipping come from tank, tanker vessels transporting crude oils or, or refined products or bulk carriers, dry bulk carriers with grain and cement and uh, mining material and so on, or container ships. That is sort of the, the real majority is like 75% of the emissions. So if we talk about those uh, as a start, then between those uh, three, it's it's clear that uh, the container segment is the one that has progressed the most. And that is driven very much by some of these big uh, retailers and, and big uh, companies doing ESG reporting, putting targets uh, on their scope three emissions and transport is a big part of that. And so it trickles quickly down to demands to shipping 
and uh, some of the big cargo owners really demand uh, zero carbon transportation of their goods. Uh, and that, uh, that opportunity has been taken by some of the big carriers to say, okay, we are going to um, offer zero carbon uh, transportation. So that's where it's coming from. And it seems that this uh, demand from that group of cargo owners is growing uh, quite rapidly. So you see some of the big carriers uh, like uh, CMA, Hapag Lloyd, Maersk out there saying that they want to offer uh, that service at an increasing rate. So in order to do that, they need to obviously have ships that can run on green fuels and the classical biofuels uh, made out of food waste is basically out of stock. It's used. The scale is, is exhausted. So they turn to some of the new fuel types, either methane, CMA is turning to biomethane or electromethane. Uh, Maersk is uh, turning to uh, methanol. And some of uh, the other big ones like NYK uh, are looking to ammonia as coming hopefully very soon. So, so that's, that's where it's coming from right now. And, and NYK is looking to ammonia because they believe that, first of all, it, it is a fuel which will be available for shipping in large quantities that ship technologies will be available and, and they will be safe and that it is coming during within just a few years. So, so you can say they are within the container uh, segment, there are different fuel pathways and different uh, ship owners are looking at these different pathways. I think that's, that's a picture we're, we're looking at today. Within tank and within bulk, you also have developments within ammonia and within methanol and within methane. But the pull from the cargo owner side, I would say, uh, seems to be a, a little less, a little uh, less concrete uh, at this point in time. But the developments are definitely there. And there's a lot uh, sort of boiling in order to get those uh, segments going as well. I mean, just as a as an observation from that piece, and sorry, Alessia, I'm I'm doing the terrible Chris going off tangent slightly, but um, no, but just 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 from that one, though, I mean, it's you know, obviously, you you within the centre have these fantastic researchers. You've got this incredibly sophisticated model that's done a lot of work on well to wake analysis. So you know, you kind of, I guess, have a a macro view of what should be the best theoretical solutions for the for the vessels and different categories to decarbonize and you you know i'm sure we'll get into that a little bit more um are you seeing that ship owners in some ways though are are actually making decisions to go down different fuel pathways for vessels than what your models would suggest and where you are seeing that difference is that being driven by things like uh, their specific socioeconomic drivers or is it to do with sort of um, I don't know, their perceptions of availability of fuel or, you know, because I'd be interested to see if there are variances in, this is what you're saying, the modeling is telling you you should use as a fuel and then the pathways that people are actually taking and what you think is is maybe the delta between those two. I think there's a general sentiment that ammonia is the scalable, sustainable energy carrier that will be widely available very much uh, enabled and, uh, and and produced from uh, from green electricity from solar or wind or hydro and that 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 is going to play a dominant role in um, 
empowering, energizing the world uh, going forward because there's very easy access to the nitrogen and therefore when you have uh, water and green electricity you can produce ammonia in large quantities no matter basically where you are in the world because there's nitrogen everywhere. So I think that, I think everybody agrees to that uh, as far as I, I understand. I think the dilemma right now is that in the shipping world there is no engine available today that can run on ammonia and therefore many of the ship owners that want to get going now they have looked at either methane or methanol as a fuel where they can order a ship today and have a ship delivered in 2024 running on a green fuel so you can say that Back to your question about the, the theoretical uh, potential and so on. The dilemma is really, uh, there's one on the timeline. So when will the proven uh, ship propulsion and fuel management system, when will that be available at scale? We are pushing hard from the center side to make that available as soon as possible. And we believe that the first ships will start to run on ammonia like over a few years, right? But then it'll take a little time before it really scales up across the industry. And and that is then competing with a methanol a case where there are now ship owners and quite a lot of ship owners are actually placing orders uh, for methanol with the understanding that that technology is available. But they also know that the fuels are more difficult to produce because you need a sustainable carbon source to do that. and there might be good opportunities right now to find bio-waste or to find other uh, sources of sustainable carbon. Direct air capture is still too expensive to really be competitive uh, in this game, so you need to find sources of, of carbon. And those sources are scarce, they're limited, so there will be some availability to some scale. But I think also there's a general sentiment that it doesn't scale indefinitely so that given that uh, ammonia has this advantage with the nitrogen there's kind of a race between the two as to when will the scale of ammonia take over from methanol so that's on that side and then finally you have the third lane where the methane uh, game is on and uh, today like we said methane is available from uh, biogas primarily today in in green form but it's very dispersed dispersed so here you're dependent on having some kind of certificate system so you can actually uh, use certificates to get access to uh, to methane at scale and i think many experience that the green methane is already taken up uh, by other sector, sectors and right now of course gas is extremely expensive in most places of the world so it's also from a commercial point of view uh, a little bit difficult to get access to that lane right now so so I think uh, what we're seeing is, is that picture, you know, some want to get going and they, they get going on, on methanol. And, and I think they also have this idea that uh, ammonia is coming very strongly and that ammonia will in many segments uh, probably be more attractive in, uh, in the longer run due to the easiness of producing uh, ammonia and therefore also uh, the cost of ammonia. Yeah, I think you've teed up Alicia quite well here because you've talked about challenges, right? So Alicia, I think you're teed up, aren't you, almost for the next question? Almost like we script these things. Almost like it. No, no, actually, I, he, 
you guys did a lot of circling, so I, <laughs> I didn't expect to ask this question, but um, it seems like uh, there's this chicken and egg uh, situation that, the, that you point to about people knowing that ammonia is probably the best option because it's infinitely scalable, and also um, knowing that an the ships or vessels need to be redesigned. The engines have to be redesigned. There's there's, the, there's a lot of dovetailing of these paths that has to occur so that um, when you have your vessel ordered and delivered, you actually have the fuel to put in it. And I'm just wondering what you think needs to be done by regulators or ship owners or future fuel producers like us, um, ports, investors. Like, What can we do to to make that dovetail, to make the ship owners more confident about ordering a ship and, and putting out those stronger demand signals and regulators to, to make it clear to them that this is this is a, the fuel that makes the most sense. And so let's try to get the path clear for it. <laughs> I, I think um, it's about getting a new system going. So what what we are trying from our side to get that new system going is to activate the different players in the chain in what we call the green corridors. And the green corridor concept uh, for us has been uh, sort of the most effective way of mobilizing and getting uh, the players in that system to talk together and to plan together. And so for us, the most powerful thing for, let's say, a developer or an energy company is is to engage in uh, green corridors, uh, because this is where we are connecting the developers and the energy companies and the logistics and the ports with the ship owners and with the cargo owners and with the regulators and and uh, the governments that are in uh, whatever areas that green corridor is in. And, and really what I think that the green corridor does in the first place is that it, it assesses the feasibility of starting the business, starting the zero carbon transportation, zero carbon shipping. And then in, in doing the feasibility analysis of that, you also get a very good understanding of what are the gaps in getting that system going. And uh, of course, there's a commercial gap in that. And people talk a lot about that commercial gap, which is fine because it's real. Uh, but it's not only like a commercial gap. There are also a number of other things that need to be done in order to enable and mobilize that uh, initial zero carbon shipping. And that emerges very clearly out of these uh, green corridor feasibility studies that we're doing. There is, for example, a permitting gap. There's a, there's a need for regulators to step in and, per, and make permissions on a timescale that they're not used to, get going, get that infrastructure in place in the ports, get the, the operational guidelines and permissions uh, enabled in the ports, etc., so that we can start to get going on these initial activities. And, and from our point of view, these green corridors are extremely important in the first place as feasibility studies to under, understand the gaps. In the second place, to actually do it uh, and thereby also get information uh, to inform the global policy system and say, look, we now have uh, these green corridor, green shipping activities running in three or five or ten places of the world. It is reliable. It is safe. We understand the commercial implications of that. So now why don't we take the global regulation uh, to the next level? So that is our working hypothesis that 
surely it's about long-term R&D on the engines and the technologies and so on, but it's also about getting going now at a smaller scale, but just to show that it, th these new systems are actually working. So I think that's pretty fascinating. And it, it, there's a lot of room for energy companies and developers to help get those green corridors going. Yeah, I, I think we're uh, participating in five right now. So we're not being lazy. <laughs> no, as, uh, I was going to say, certainly Alicia is not going to be lazy on it. I mean, it is, it is interesting thinking about just the scale of the challenge, you know, how do you... You know, how do you do it? And then this kind of consortium-based approach in the green corridors that you're talking about is interesting. I mean, where, where will you see other equivalents of of that sort of approach has also been around kind of people thinking about EV charging networks on the road haulage side, right? I mean, that's been a, a model that people talk about and going, right, we need EV charging along this corridor. The grid needs to come into place, you know, and then it's a conversation between government and private sector about how you do that. Um, you know, uh, Obviously, as uh, people who work in the hydrogen space, we're somewhat skeptical that you can electrify everything. But people always do ask the question, why can't you? So I thought it'd be a question to, you know, put to you, given the expertise of the center. How, how do you respond or how do you think about the opportunity for using things like solid state batteries or other forms of electrification and shipping? I mean, are there ideas out there that, you know, could that you can see a pathway within the next 10, 20, or even 30 years for electrifying a number of the vessels that today we're talking about using methanol and ammonia? Or, or is that just really, really far out? And, you know, it's not really, it's not a credible solution, even in the next 20, 30 years. What's your take? I think, I mean, I, I hardly ever say never, right? So, uh, you should never say never for uh, to technology, but 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 I think you now you say twenty thirty year perspective. You should definitely never say never. But right now, with what we can see right now, is that the energy demand for these cross ocean uh, voyages with large ships it really takes a lot of energy, <clears throat> and so with the with the energy densities that we see anywhere uh, in the horizon for battery technologies, it, it seems to be out of reach in any time soon uh, for those voyages. But I would say for, for shorter voyages, and, and right now we're seeing two to 300 nautical mile voyages being done by battery driven ships. So, I mean, that is actually quite significant. You have a lot of uh, so-called short sea shipping where batteries can definitely be used. And there's a lot of shipping activities where batteries can be used, both on, you know, ferry transportation, cruise, uh, service vessels around wind turbines, uh, small uh, row-row uh, carry operations, uh, intra-whatever, Baltic or Europe or whatever. So there's a lot of opportunity for that. But... But I think what we have taken as, as a challenge is, is mainly to show how can we decarbonize the big chunks of shipping, the really difficult parts with ships going across Atlantic or Pacific or whatever. And, and those distances are really, really large. So it, it, takes, it takes a lot of energy and, and batteries are not, doesn't seem to be in the, in the horizon for that. Yeah, I mean, I was going to say the only other innovation I get asked about is AI, which I think for a period of time, it was almost like cryptocurrency. If you added AI to a name, everyone thought it sounded amazing. I mean, it, it, you know, we're talking about different fuels and optimizing and green corridors to allow people like Alicia to use sun and wind and create these massive 
fuel production hubs and then we're talking about huge distances you know does the center look at things like ai and and its role in helping to connect up production of these new green fuels with shipping demand or is that a little science fiction-esque that has a huge potential we we don't spend a lot of time doing that at the moment Uh, maybe we should but i think uh, in general you can say the logistics and the way logistics is optimized has a lot of potential uh, globally so we believe that one of the trends we will be seeing as energy costs uh, start to go up is more optimization of uh, global logistics and today you see actually that some of the operations have rather low utilization of the ships Uh, so they're running quite a large part of their time in in ballast type condition and and it should be possible to uh, to get the utilization up uh, and thereby also decrease uh, the energy need so and and uh, ai and data analytics will play a huge role uh, in that but it also requires some more structural changes to the industry because you need larger pools of vessels you can't do that on a vessel by vessel type operation you really need larger pools of ships uh, to make that operation but i think it's that's also a general trend in our industry that uh, that what used to be individual and and smaller shipping operations they are they are coming together in larger pools in order to do exactly that and it gives them a commercial benefit so that's a very interesting development as well. Are you looking at any um, automation in the vessels as well? I mean, especially with ammonia um, vessels, maybe are, are there any things that you might be able to do with automation that could solve some of the safety concerns that people have? Yes, I, I think uh, that's definitely ongoing as we speak. Huge communities of, uh, of technology companies are working right now on uh, autonomous uh, systems. And and that is, I think, uh, an area where we're going to see a lot of development over the next five years. And you could actually imagine that we could have a completely autonomous uh, engine system on on a vessel so that the concerns around ammonia, for example, or, or methanol from a safety point of view will be mitigated by having engine rooms that don't have people in them. So that kind of development uh, is ongoing. And uh, I, I think it, it has it has a lot of potential. Uh, so and it, it, this is not like a theoretical pie in the sky. It's something which is very concrete and it is happening as we speak with huge resources uh, going into these areas. It has safety benefits. It has performance benefits. It has reliability benefits. It has all kinds of benefits. So I think this is being acknowledged uh, widely now that uh, we have to go in that direction. Integrated uh, engine and propulsion systems that don't need a lot of personal attention by people. But I guess that's a great timing. I mean, if you have to redesign anyway, you can get in all of your efficiencies and all of the different <laughs> things you've been meaning to solve all along. Uh, just do it all at once, I guess. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, I think it's 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 absolutely uh, the case, and it's it's interesting because now we are in a situation where all components on the ship they have sensors and and opportunities to be controlled remotely. You know, so it's yeah. I think it's it's really we are in a time now where we will see some some big changes to to those systems. That's great. Well, maybe just one last one. Um, 
what, what do you think your big accomplishments have been since starting the center? And, and what are you looking forward to doing in 2023 and, and beyond? I think the first big achievement uh, is to establish this collaboration platform where we have so strong partners, partners that engage both on the strategic level and also on the executional level with real expertise and real data. That was a dream for me two years ago, and we have that now. So we have some of the biggest and strongest companies in the world, some of the biggest, strongest maritime authorities in the world working with us uh, both on the very strategic level, on, on industry sector level to understand the possible pathways, and then also on the concept level with what are the standards, what are the regulations, what are the business models, what are the technology concepts that are going to uh, actually be implemented to get onto those pathways of decarbonization. So that, that in itself, I think, is, is great, uh, and it's working now. Uh, with these partners, and and then if uh, to talk about what are the, the concrete things that we have actually that we have delivered, I think we have delivered uh, some strategy documents that have been widely accepted in the industry. They have been co-created by public uh, sector parties and industry sector parties uh, together. So co-creating an understanding of what is what does it take. To get there, we just launched the Maritime Decarbonization Strategy uh, on the 8th of December. It's on our webpage. And that's a description about what needs to take place this decade in order to get us onto that trajectory of decarbonization. So that's a, that was a huge piece of work. And it talks about energy efficiency. It talks about green corridors and the first movers. And it talks about what does it take to create these sustainable and scalable energy pathways. Um, and, and finally, it talks about the, the regulatory aspects of all of that. And that creates the backdrop for our current uh, work programs where we're going more into depth with creating uh, the concepts and demonstrating these new concepts uh, of, of actual decarbonization. So we're demonstrating with the green corridors how you enable the whole uh, chain to move. We are demonstrating, for example, on the ammonia side, we are making concrete demonstration projects now on how to handle ammonia in bunkering operations, in the port environment, etc., to mitigate the risk and handle the safety aspects of that. Uh, we're looking at uh, emissions treatment, after treatment, to make sure that the environmental impact of these new fuels being combusted uh, are okay, et cetera, et cetera. So we have more than 50 projects going now to enable ammonia as a fuel, methane as a fuel, and methanol uh, as a fuel. So I think that portfolio of projects is also a big, big achievement to have that uh, up and running. I was going to say it's a it's a very modest list of things, right? I mean, you're not doesn't sound too big at all. I mean, God, you know, <laughs> fifty things for a centre as as a set is incredible. Um, and it sounds like uh, that's a report that uh, many of our listeners will need to get their hands on. Although I suspect, um, given the content, perhaps not bedtime reading, perhaps more armchair reading to to work their way through. But um, 
I was just going to say, Bo, uh, you know, I think it's been a fantastic discussion and there's obviously a huge amount of content, I think, within that for people to unpack. And as always with good guests, we have far more questions that probably now than we started with, which is the danger <laughs> of going into topics this meaty. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much for joining and, and um, for all of those accomplishments. We made you list, but we, we already knew about them <laughs> because it is incredible pieces of work and um, you know, I think the industry is really grateful that you guys are producing such, you know, detailed techno-economic analysis and, and going through all the really extensive research and development and actual uh, demonstration. I mean, just you've accomplished quite a lot. So and very helpful to the industry, all parts of the industry. So we're glad you're around. Robert, thank you very much. And, and likewise for making this uh, podcast available to everyone. So it was really a pleasure to talk to you. So Patrick, uh, what did you think of the interview? Any interesting topics come up? I mean, to be honest, you know, shipping remains a fascinating, um, fascinating space, a global space, and an incredible challenge. And I think Bo, Bo just really captured the complexity of 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 that that actual challenge, but also gave us kind of a very very clear understanding of the kind of constraints and challenges with different pathways for, for decarbonization. And I think at the end of the day, you know, people often forget that shipping is so central to our, our lives. You don't even think about when you go to the store where your iPhone came from or how it was moved. And, and part of that is because you've had seamless shipping and, and logistics that have made, you know, the global maritime trade so in, incredibly, incredibly successful and important. And, you know, as Bo also talked to, you know, bulk commodities, we, which we, we barely even register anymore. You know, this is a huge sector for, for the decarbonization challenge. It is a huge sector in terms of managing the fuel transition. And, and I, I think Bo really, really, you know, was able to get into some of the, the depth there that, that you often kind of struggle to, to, to speak to, you know, cleanly and simply to, to make it accessible to people. What about you, Alicia? You know, given that you're, you know, obviously uh, central in the ammonia world, I'm sure there's there's some interesting pieces to take away from this for for you as well, and for for folks interested in that space. Uh, yeah, I mean, you you definitely point out uh, that shipping is incredibly complicated, and and I think that that's one of the reasons that these green corridors programs that you know we're working on. It's it's a good way to eat the elephant, you know, like one bite at a time. We get we have some uh, project that we can identify and and just work through every potential issue so that it can it can work and then we can you know copy that around the world. And I think that that's a good strategy that a lot of these groups that are working together, you know, including yours and and, and us as well, <laughs> um, are, are working together to uh, make sure that. Uh, we were sort of figuring everything out, but famously like law of the seas has always been very difficult and you can see why, because it, it sort of is underpinning everything. Even now you'd think we're in the 1500s, the degree to which shipping is important in our lives, but it's, it really hasn't changed. It's, it's really, you know, shipping is, is, is under everything. And I, I think also some of the things that he said about the different future fuel options, of course, I agree with him because I've read the research and, and seen all of the techno-economic studies. And, you know, we've discussed this uh, many times in different forums. 
But I think that he he put it very well and in a way that I don't usually put it. Um, so, I mean, of course, the, the biomethane, the biodiesel, these are just not options at all because there's not enough and increasingly people are not accepting um, the forms because they're actually harming uh, agriculture in some other way or using old forests or there's a lot of problems with, with different types of fuels in, in that area. And mostly it's just taken by different sectors, as he said. And then when you get to methanol, methanol is, is very, it's very difficult to know if you're going to have the appropriate uh, carbon dioxide or you're going to be able to have all the things that are necessary in order to have secure supply of fuel. And that's something that the shipping industry definitely needs. If they're going to build ammonia ship, they're going to want to um, know that the fuel is there. And as he pointed out with ammonia, we have endless amounts of nitrogen. 70% of the air is nitrogen. We have endless amounts of seawater. Um, so we have endless amounts of, of wind and solar. So we can always manufacture green ammonia. And that's pretty enticing. It, it leads you to build really large facilities that can help serve uh, the global trade, as you know we have we are doing. But I had never actually thought about it that starkly that that we really have no constraints and all of the other sort of options, even going to fossil fuels, you can run out. You, you, there might not be enough, um, and, and and that is a, a real issue, and it's definitely an issue when you're going to invest in a you know, 40-year vessel or, or you know, have change the, the way that you do your operations, you need to know that that fuel is going to be around. And I think that ammonia just is a, a much safer bet. You hit on a really interesting point, uh, specifically just at the end there, which is you know, that resiliency factor is going to be central in every consumer side conversation. Um, you know, when we talk about shipping, the volumes of fuel required are so significant that, that you need something that folks can, can actually have confidence in, in terms of, you know, ability to produce at industrial scale, you know, produce in, you know, across the world, right? So, so that kind of consistency of availability is going to be critical. And, and I think ammonia hit, hits on, a, on, a, on an advantage at that point by virtue of the fact that it's already a global commodity. It is globally traded, it is globally manufactured. And what we're really talking about now, and why this is so central to the hydrogen debate is, you know, the NH3 molecule, we're, we're talking about decarbonizing that hydrogen uh, stream. And when you do that, you know, that's, that's, your, that's your carbon footprint, you know, bar any transportation that might be, you know, obviously in the interim period fossil linked. Uh, kind of, uh, you know, kind of removed. And, you know, the more ammonia is available and abundant and, and has these green credentials, the more we can have confidence in, in actually, you know, that supply and it, and it helps that transition move quickly. I think the other pit here, and you, you hit on this as well, I think Bo, Bo hits on it too, is that that carbon feedstock, that biogenic carbon sourcing, biomethane, et cetera, et cetera, you know, that's going to become incredibly valuable by virtue of its scarcity. And and anybody thinking about price sensitivities and availability, you know, rationally, this is this is going to be very, very hard to see scale by virtue of the, the necessity that we have for those kind of genuine, um, you know, biosourced carbon uh, feedstocks. So, yeah, I couldn't agree more. I think I think maybe one question 
one question back to you a little bit is when we think about these projects you know shipping is is a, is a you know as a sector is a, a monstrous monstrous industry and i can't help but wonder you know about the relative scale challenges for production and and like how we actually put these pieces together given that you know obviously ports have large bunkering facilities but there's but fundamentally there's no way this is a you know a small scale you know, very, very kind of, um, you know, centralized kind of, uh, or kind of a port side, shall we say, rather than centralized production uh, kind of scale. So, you know, what what do you, as a, as somebody who's obviously, you know, developing these sort of projects, think about that kind of future global shipping supply market, if you will? Well, I think that because you need to refill twice as much with ammonia, it takes up twice the amount of space, basically, if you if you've got a vessel. Um, so you, you need to do a bit more bunkering, I think, than usual, which I think is going to open the door to just many more ports. So the ports that we already have that see a lot of traffic and then secondary ports growing larger and, and growing the capacity to um, also uh, bunker with ammonia and to just spread this out all over the world. And so most places have some way to make ammonia. Um, and they will try to uh, get that to a, a regional bunkering hub. In the beginning, you know, obviously the, the best sites um, have been chosen and, and they're going to be the cheapest right now. But going forward, we're going to have a lot of reduction in the costs of like the supply chain and, and a lot of things that are not accounted for in project finance, like the project finance looks a little bit too much backward, like from a, a banker's or a lender's uh, point of view rather than an equity investor's point of view. So each phase is going to get cheaper and cheaper. So these large projects that are that are being built right now, they will continue to be the cheapest of all of the options, Or but we'll be able to have projects in more places because of the decrease in costs of, of various activities like electrolysis, which will make other places equally competitive or, or at least as competitive because the big projects already went out there and lowered the price of these supply chain items. So what I see is an expanding world of possibilities to put projects that is uh, more widely spread out and that will help us to actually produce enough for the industry. But that only happens after you have real economies of scale and, and scale up of, of the supply chain now in the beginning um, to, to have those benefits for these, these later projects um, that otherwise would not be the ideal site. They don't have the ideal resource profile, but you can get over it because a lot of the other costs have been driven down. Great. Well, I think with that, I can I can confidently say that we have only I think started to scratch the surface on on the shipping markets. I think as we go region by region and, and use case by use case, I think I think this is all going to open up and it's going to be a very very interesting and probably rapidly rapidly moving space as well. So um, yeah, I, I think I think with that we can uh, thank Bo again for for his time and uh, thank you all for listening in. And that does it for us today here at Everything About Hydrogen. A huge EAH thank you to Dr. Bo Sarah Simonson, 
CEO of the Maersk McKinney Muller Center for Zero Carbon Shipping, for speaking with us on the show today. And thank you, as always, to Alicia, Patrick, and Chris for their masterful co-hosting abilities and hard work on the show. And as you know, we love to hear from our listeners here at Everything About Hydrogen. If you have any questions for us or our guests, please send us an email at info at h2podcast.com or find us on Twitter at, at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time. Till then, all the best from the team here at Everything About Hydrogen. <laughs>